So Father, we come now to your word and we ask that you would use it to mold us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, so that we would not be conformed to this world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that, Father, according to your word, we would no longer be children who are tossed to and fro and who are carried about by every wind and wave of doctrine, but that we would be built up in every way into Jesus Christ, that we would mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I ask that you would use your word this morning, preaching of your word today, and the hearing of your people to rebuke and to reprove Father, we ask that you would use it to correct and to convict. Lord, will you use it to encourage and to strengthen? Father, use it that we would be useful and effective in the service of your kingdom, that we would be marked by love, and that the world would know us by our love. So, Father, speak to us now through your word. Will you edify your church, glorify your name, and sanctify us in truth? Your word is truth. We submit to it now. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, if you're not there already, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me in your Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. If you're our guest or you're visiting with us for the first time, we're in week 10 of a 13-week message series called Ecclesia, where we've been studying together for the last couple of months the doctrine of the church Uh, answering the question, what is the church? And more specifically, what are the marks and the functions of a healthy church? And for the last couple of months, we've seen that this word church in its simplest form, it means assembly or gathering. But when we look at the whole of the New Testament, we see that more specifically, uh, the local church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who profess him as Lord and are submitted to the authority of his word. Uh, They regularly gather under the leadership of qualified pastors and elders to receive the whole counsel of God's word and to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion. They stir up one another to love and good works, hold each other accountable to walk in holiness, and work together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. So today, we'll be focusing on that sentence that says, we will hold each other accountable to walk in holiness as we look at the practice of accountability and the process of church discipline from Matthew chapter 18. Now, uh, I'm just going to go and warn you right out of the gate this morning that this message is a lot. Uh, it's, it's a lot in terms of the fact that the content is, of it is just heavy, that this is a little bit of a heavy subject, so we want to go and just, just kind of rip that Band-Aid right off, uh, right away this morning, uh, but it's also a lot in terms of content. Just to invite you into my process this past week, when I finished my study and prep, uh, I was uh, at about six full pages worth of notes, really needing to get that down to five, and in my effort to get it down to five, uh, I whittled it down to seven and a half instead. So, um, so you do with that what you will. I'm going to do my best with our time together this morning. If we don't get to all of it, we can circle back around uh, to some of this next week. We did okay with the first group, so hopefully we can cover this. But, but man, this is such a sensitive and challenging subject that I, I firmly believe this morning, church, like we got to be really careful not to cut corners. Uh, because as you know, we open up Matthew 18, I, I think we could be argued, it could be argued that Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is one of the most neglected, if not the most neglected command of Jesus that he has given to his church. I think it could be argued that this passage is the most neglected command that Jesus has given to his church. In Matthew 18, Jesus lays out a clear process for what could lead 
to the dismissal of a professing Christian from a local congregation, and this is uh, more commonly referred to as the practice of excommunication. Now, this is a practice that's largely ignored and neglected, mainly because of the abuses of it throughout the centuries. Uh, The way that this has been poorly practiced in many contexts throughout church history has led many believers to the place that, that we've just kind of abandoned it altogether. You know, some examples of this, was one was during the Spanish Inquisition, uh, church discipline actually went to the extent of physical torture. When someone fell into sin or was caught in sin, they could be strapped to a device that was called the rack, uh, which would pull their limbs in different directions until they all came out of socket. Now, you will be glad to hear that we did not unload one of those off the trailer this morning. That is not our approach. Uh, we, we are not endorsing that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but this is generally viewed just as a widely negative concept. You know, when we think of church discipline, the first image that comes to many of our minds, it's, it's like Hester Prynne in the Scarlet Letter. Someone is branded, they're being shamed, they're being humiliated publicly and in front of others. More recently, I heard a terrible story of a woman who uh, had, had come to the leadership of her congregation. She had a sexually abusive husband. Uh, she divorced her husband, and then they publicly excommunicated her because she, they said that she didn't have biblical grounds for divorce. And so just, just humiliated, shamed, her name, her reputation just dragged through the mud, even though she had perfectly legitimate biblical grounds for the action that she took. And then, man, there's just countless other stories, maybe even from some of you in this room, like names that are called out during sermons for sins that weren't committed, or, or at least uh, errors that you made that you weren't even aware had been offensive to others. Uh, sometimes things that were made up in order to protect the power of the person preaching or the institution of the church in order to ostracize an individual or a family to, to get them to leave a congregation. So again, before we jump into this passage, we've got to honestly acknowledge a few things. The verses we are about to look at have been horribly abused to justify the public shaming and abuse of countless people. Real harm has been done in the name of preserving holiness and holding the line on truth, and you and I need to be sensitive to that reality today. There's real harm that has occurred at the hands of pastors, that has occurred at the hands of churches because of the abuse of this passage of Scripture. But this is the other reality we need to recognize, is that just because something has been done poorly doesn't mean it can't be done rightly. We have to recognize that just because these verses have been misused, it does not mean you and I have been given the freedom to ignore them. This is still a command that's been given to us by Jesus, and you and I as followers of Jesus should strive to honor him by walking in obedience to all of his word and not just the parts that make us comfortable. We saw this when we studied the book of Titus back in the fall, and this is what's happening culturally right now uh, with a lot of Christianity here in the West, is, you know, we we saw this in the book of Titus, like when you look at a a, a Christian teaching or a doctrine like how God has called men to serve as leaders within the home and in the church, because of the abuses of this, the, the play for many has been just to completely throw that out the window. But as we saw when we studied the book of Titus, when a doctrine or a biblical teaching is abused, the solution is not to get rid of good doctrine, the solution is to get rid of bad teachers, And so we recognize right away that any pastor, any church that has abused the words of Matthew 18, 15 through 20, we need to be reminded, church, that God is holy and he is just. And one day they will stand and give account before a holy God for how terribly they've abused his word. Justice will come to those who have abused and misused the word of God. But just because it's been done poorly doesn't mean it can't be done rightly. And you and I have not been given for permission to functionally edit these five verses out of the Bible just because they make us uncomfortable. But last week we studied the uh, multiple facets of the Great Commission. We saw that, that discipleship does not end the moment someone is baptized. I mean, we praise God for baptisms we celebrated last week. That discipleship journey doesn't end there. It's starting there. 
when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, go and make disciples and baptize them and then teach them to observe how much of what he's commanded? All of it. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we need to see this morning that Matthew 18, this is part of the all that Jesus has commanded. That This is part of what he has given to us for the discipleship and spiritual formation of others. So by God's grace and with the help of his spirit, we can carry out everything that he's commanded in his word, no matter how difficult it might seem. So this is what we're going to see as we open up Matthew 18 this morning, is that the Lord has given his church processes for church discipline and accountability for two primary reasons. One is to preserve the unity of the body, and the other is to preserve the integrity of our witness. And, and man, I think it just can't be said enough as we jump into this together this morning. What we are about to read here, these are first and foremost the words of Jesus. This is not the policy written by an institution. This is not a policy written by a pastor, a church, a parachurch organization. These are the words of Jesus Christ himself. He is the one that commands what we're about to read. And so it's undoubtedly going to cause a little bit of discomfort. But let it just be said loud and clear at the very beginning of all this this morning. What is the goal of all this? What is the goal of biblical accountability and church discipline? The goal we'll see from Matthew 18 is repentance of sin that leads to restoration of fellowship. The primary aim of biblical accountability and church discipline is not punitive, it's restorative. Not to cause punishment or or to cause harm, but to restore brothers and sisters back to the body of Christ. So the goal is not condemnation, the goal is not excommunication. The goal, by God's grace, is restoration. This is uh, what Mark Dever has to say about this in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. He said, uh, biblical church discipline is simple obedience to God. I mean, so we start there because it's a command that's given to us by Jesus and a simple confession that we need help. We cannot live the Christian life alone. Our purpose in church discipline is positive for the individual discipline, for other Christians as they see the real danger of sin, for the health of the church as a whole, and for the corporate witness of the church to those outside. Most of all, our holiness is to reflect the holiness of God. It should mean something to be a member of the church. Not for our pride's sake, but for God's name's sake. Biblical church discipline is a mark of a healthy church. So this is what we see. Again, the, the primary aim is not punitive, it's, it's restorative. It's, it's repentance of sin that leads to the restoration of fellowship within the body of Christ, to preserve the unity of the body, to promote the integrity of our witness. This is the aim of what Jesus has given us in Matthew 18. Now, before we jump into verses 15 through 20, I want to make sure we're fully aware of the context, because if we miss this, then, then this message is just not going to hit home for us this morning. This is where we need our, our whole Bible. I want you to look, if you've got Matthew 18 open, we're going to read verses 12 through 14 right before we get to verse 15. You know, because uh, what Jesus teaches here in Matthew 18, that this is the parable of the lost sheep, and I think that's amazing, right before Jesus gives us one of his most challenging commands, he provides us with one of the most comforting images. And this is what he shows us about his own heart in Matthew 18, 12 through 14. Jesus asked the crowd that's gathered there, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the, uh, over the 99 that never went astray. 
So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Jesus. When we think of Jesus, is this not the image we love to think about? He is the good shepherd. He loves his sheep. He is the good shepherd. He will leave the 99 to go after the one that's fallen away. So that's who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus does, but it still leaves a question for it. How does Jesus do it? How does the good shepherd leave the 99 to go after the one? That's what we find in verses 15 through 20. So everything we're about to read, you need to read this through the lenses of the good shepherd, the heart of the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. What we find in verses 15 through 20 is exactly how he does this. Let's read this passage again one more time together uh, from Matthew 18. Verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Everybody say alone. We're gonna come back to that in just a minute. He says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So again, that, that's the goal. The goal is, man, this stops right here. The goal is restoration. The goal is, is fellowship that is no longer breached and the unity of the body has been preserved. But here's the second step. He said, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Then here's the third step. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, here's the fourth step, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So again, Jesus, Matthew 18, he lays out a four-step process for biblical accountability. And just hear me loud and clear as we've been even you know, going back into the fall, studying church health as we studied the book of Titus, and then carrying that theme into the spring over the last several weeks, there is no such thing as a healthy church that does not practice Matthew 18. And so this is given to us by Jesus. He lays out a four-step process for biblical accountability. He shows us first that, that biblical accountability starts with private confrontation. It starts with a private confrontation. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, there's a little bit of debate among scholars about whether or not the words against you should be included here. If uh, you have New International Version, New American Standard, your, your version might actually just say, uh, if your brother sins, and, and ends the conversation there. So again, this is one of those places where it's helpful to see what the Bible as a whole has to say about this subject. And if you go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, which we're going to come back to at the end, Paul writes, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So I think the, the whole message of the New Testament shows us we don't just approach people because they have sinned against us personally. We are, as the body and bride of Christ, we are all responsible as the body for addressing anyone, brother or sister, who has fallen into sin. But I think it's, it's really important here we recognize you know, where this could go haywire because you know, there's always at least that one person who becomes the self-appointed behavior police, you know what I'm talking about? Like it's, it's they, they have now like ordained themselves to be the person who, who's monitoring the holiness of the body. And, and, and this is, you know, a, a dangerous game to play because I think we also need to see through the New Testament that, that, that we're not talking about petty grievances here. 
I mean, we see all through Scripture, you find passages like 1 Peter 4, where, uh, where Peter writes that love covers a multitude of sins. In 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says that love bears and endures all things. Love this from Psalm 19.11, how it is the glory of man to overlook an offense. So, so we're not talking about petty grievances here. Just, you know, these all, you know, just random grumbling. We're not talking about like, man, they sat in the seat that you like to sit in on Sunday morning. You know, they got the last parking spot at the Y, so you had to park at the doctor's office next door. You know, they got the last piece of fried chicken when we did potluck at the baptistry thing last year. And of course, I think we could debate. That's a pretty serious offense, maybe, to, to some of us. We're in the South. But we're not, we're not talking about petty grievances here. I mean, we, we're talking about serious moral lapses that could very negatively reflect on the body of Christ and may ultimately involve some sort of group intervention. D.A. Carson, I think, has defined this well. He says, there are three things that necessitate church discipline. Major moral issues, major doctrinal issues, and major lawlessness characterized by divisiveness. I think it's a good definition. Uh, That definition is really consistent with what we see playing out in the New Testament. Public rebuke is generally extended to those who have had serious moral lapses, and they remain unrepentant in their sin. So this is sexual immorality, idolatry, uh, ethnic partiality and division within the body, dishonesty, disloyalty, gossip, slander, division. These are the types of things through the New Testament that tend to merit rebuke. But it's not even just about, about moral lapses. We also see all through the New Testament, whether through the words of Paul or Peter or James or Jude, uh, Jesus himself, we rebuke those who preach false doctrine and try to lead those away, others away from the faith. So the starting point for all of this, Jesus says, is a private conversation. It starts with private confrontation. So so pay attention closely here, church. Jesus does not say, if your brother sins, go and tell everyone else his fault. He doesn't say, if your brother sins, go and vaguely vent your frustration online. He doesn't say, if your brother sins, go and tell your friend who also doesn't like that person so the two of you can vent about it together. He doesn't say, if your brother sins, go and tell your Bible study group so they will all join you in your negative perception of this person. He says, no, you go and tell him his fault between you and him, and what's Jesus say? Alone. Between you and him alone. It starts with private conversation, one-on-one conversation. Now, uh, very, I, I think a couple of pretty obvious exceptions here. Um, you know, Romans 13 shows us that when laws have been broken, like harm has been caused to someone, God has ordained governing authority to uphold the rule of law. You know, so if someone has been physically abused, someone has been sexually abused by someone who's a part of a local church, no, we are not requiring them to go back to that person one-on-one. That would be abdicating our responsibility to love our neighbor as ourselves. That that would be a form of spiritual abuse that probably puts that person in even greater harm. Get just another just terrible story I heard recently. It was a, a young woman who was sexually abused by a man who was in the church. She came forward. She shared this with the church. And then this man was confronted. And then they said that they, they felt like he had adequately repented of this. The following Sunday, they forced the two of them to sit together in worship and then come forward and pray together when the service ended. Church, he, hear me loud and clear this morning. That is wickedness. That, that, that is spiritual abuse of the worst possible kind. And, and the way that this verse has been hidden behind, you go to them one-on-one to force people into these types of situation, it's completely disconnected from the heart of God. And so again, there, there are obvious exceptions here that I think we have to be very careful that we're not gonna put someone in harm's way as, as they go and confront someone who has sinned against them or someone else. But I believe that this person is not a threat to you or a threat to others. Think what Jesus is showing us here. 
the biblical mandate is that we go to them one on one. So here's what that means for us. If we become aware of someone else's sin, and instead of addressing it with them personally, we go and we start having conversations with other people about their sin, we ourselves are now the people who have fallen into sin. We have forsaken the command given by Jesus. Instead of going to that person one-on-one and letting it end right there, we feel the need to suddenly share this with four or five, and God help us, sometimes we mask it as prayer requests. This is not what Jesus is, is, is permitting and promoting within the body. We, we go to each other one-on-one. You know, we tend to be conflict-averse people. We, we don't like hard conversations. Oftentimes, we, we give ourselves the out when it comes to someone's sin. Like, well, it's, I don't think it's really my place to, to address them directly. Well, friend, if it's not your place to address their sin directly, then it's certainly not your place to discuss their sin with everybody else. But, but what Jesus shows in Matthew 18 most clearly is, as a matter of fact, it is our responsibility like, this, this has been given to us. It is our business when we're part of the body of Christ. Because when we start to sin against one another, what that's doing is it's fracturing the unity of the body. The body of Christ that Jesus paid for at the cost of his own life. That this unity is now being fractured. The integrity of our witness is now being compromised. If a watching world is seeing you gossip or slander about another brother or sister or just openly venting about the ways that they have fallen, why would anybody want to be a part of that? And so this is why Jesus puts this safeguard in place, that we go to people one on one. According to Jesus, it is our place to address others when they fall into sin. And to forsake this responsibility is to disobey a clear command that's given to us by Jesus. Again, go go back to the lenses of the good shepherd. Make sure we see this again through verses 12 through 14. If we're going to take this responsibility Seriously, if we're going to reflect the heart of the good shepherd, then we should take seriously our responsibility to pursue people when they have fallen away into sin. I love this from James chapter 5. We have this language almost word for word in our, our membership covenant. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, this is incredible. If anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a responsibility Jesus has given us. And and what a privilege to to be a part of this. What a privilege to be the hands and the feet, the body of Christ, to be functionally the good shepherd here on earth as we pursue the one who has fallen away from the 99. So again, how does the good shepherd leave the 99 to go after the one? He does it through you and he does it through me. He sends us to one another. You and I are the vessels he sends out to rescue brothers and sisters who have shipwrecked their faith. This is the responsibility he's given to the church. In verse 16, again, the goal Jesus shows us, it's restoration. The goal is restoration. Verse 16, if he listens, you have gained your brother. Hopefully it stops right there. Hopefully that's the end of the conversation. Hopefully there's no further, further issue. Hopefully we, we can humbly address them, but honestly address them. And, and the hope is that they come to their senses, they repent of their sins, and the relationship is restored. But if they don't respond to private confrontation, second, Jesus shows us there should be a group intervention. So starts private conversa- uh, confrontation, second is a group intervention. Verse 16, Jesus says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Now this was uh, consistent with the Old Testament law. And under the Old Testament law, charges against an individual required the testimony of multiple witnesses in order for that testimony to be considered valid. 
So again, these need to be people who can testify to the fact that a good faith effort and attempt has been made to address the person involved, and now we're going to come together as a group of people who address this individual. So again, you see the pattern here with Jesus. The pattern is we want to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. Starts with a one-on-one, and then it moves into a small group, but Jesus shows that if they won't respond even to the small group, then a third step, a more public step, becomes necessary, and the third step is then public recognition. If they don't respond to a private confrontation, if they don't respond to a group intervention, then the third step we need to take is a public recognition. Now again, you know, it might surprise you to hear that Jesus, of all people, Jesus only uses the word church a couple of times in all the gospel accounts. He says here uh, in uh, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is one of a few, only a few times that Jesus actually uses the word church. To see the other in the Gospel of Matthew, you go back two chapters to Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew 16, Jesus gives this incredible promise. Talking to his disciples, he, he asks them, who do people say that I am? And then he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what's Jesus say to Peter? Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What's the promise that follows? Gates of hell will not overcome it. It's an incredible promise Jesus gives in Matthew 16. He has promised he will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the second use then comes two chapters later here in Matthew 18. The instruction is tell it to the church. The first time, I will build my church, Matthew 16. The second, Matthew 18, tell it to the church. In Matthew 16, Jesus is promising what he's going to do. I will build my church and the gates of hell will overcome it. In Matthew 18, Jesus is showing us how he's going to build his church. He's going to build his church through the ongoing practice of church discipline and congregational accountability. So again, I'm going to go as far as to say this on the authority of what we've seen Jesus say in these few verses. Any church that refuses to practice Matthew 18 has no claim on the promise of Matthew 16. If we're going to forsake the command of Jesus for how he's going to build his church in Matthew 18, then we have no claim on the promise of Matthew 16 that he will build his church. Because if we're forsaking the commands of Jesus, we're no longer building his church, we're now building our church. And Jesus has not promised to build our church according to our own comforts and convictions. He's promised to build his church according to his word. And what he shows us here is that in order to preserve the unity of the body and the integrity of our witness, it's often necessary to publicly address sin in the body. We see multiple examples of this throughout the New Testament. Back in the fall of 2020, we studied the book of Philippians together for a few months as a church family. We saw this in Philippians 4. That there were two women within the church body that there was some kind of serious division going on. And it must have been serious, y'all, because Paul caught word of it like 1,500 miles away in prison. There was some drama going on in Philippi. Like serious drama. And, and man, this is how it went down. Paul writes his letter to the church of Philippi. You can imagine, again, one of, there's, a, there's a pastor, there's an elder, there's a deacon. Somebody unrolls Paul's letter, and they read it to the whole congregation. And, and this is how it goes down in verses 2 and 3. Paul, Paul writes, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Like, can you imagine how these two sisters felt in that moment? Like, Euodia's over here, Syntyche's over here. Everybody's giving them the side eyes. Like, this is awkward. That was some drama. I mean, it's one thing to get called out. They got called out in the Bible. That's forever. 
You know, everybody else, you know, everybody else in Philippi was like, I ain't causing nothing. I ain't starting nothing around here. No, and, and, and what's Paul's reasoning? He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. He's going to help. You just hear the exasperation of Paul's voice. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul's writing to these two sisters, say, listen, would y'all just get along? Like, whatever your difference is, put it aside. We are laborers together in the gospel. There's something greater at stake than the petty drama that's marking your relationship right now. And so it gets to the point that it has to be addressed publicly. But again, because of how this type of teaching has been abused, you might still be sitting there thinking, well, well man, to me, that sounds like an abuse of authority. Sounds like Paul was using kind of a bully pulpit moment here to call out people. Well, time out. If we go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we see that in no way, shape, or form are the pastors and elders of a congregation exempt from this process. This isn't just limited to the members of the congregation. This applies to the leaders of the church. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So same standard. But, but here's where the standard, they kind of up the ante a little bit more, even for those in leadership. Paul writes, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so the rest may stand in fear. Gosh, you know, I, I, I get goosebumps a little bit when I read that verse because you know what that verse tells me? Is, is that even as, as one of the pastors of the church, man, if I fall into sin and I'm confronted and I refuse to repent of my sin, I'm gonna double down on my sin. I'm gonna stubbornly refuse to admit that I'm in sin. That means that any other pastor or elder of this church has the biblical authority to stand in this place and publicly rebuke me in front of everyone else. Even the leaders of the church are not exempt from this. You know, so much of this tests our modern sensibilities because it comes across as shaming, it comes across as an attempt to humiliate. You know, I think we have to recognize you and I are living at a time and a moment in culture where uh, authority is innately seen as evil that accountability is almost uh, always characterized as some form of abuse. And so again, we'll go back to where we were at the beginning, that there's no question whatsoever that these uh, verses of Scripture have been used to cause serious harm in the body of Christ, and yet at the same time, you and I have to be wise and discerning and recognize this. We're in a cultural moment where almost anything gets labeled as abuse, which, by the way, when you call everything abuse, nothing is abuse. And what it does is it diminishes the stories of people who have actually been abused. What you often find uh, as you do a little bit of investigation is that there's a brother or sister who was wanting to walk in open, unrepentant sin, and the church told them no. And what do they do? They'll bounce to a half dozen other churches. Well, the church hurt me. When in fact, they were the ones hurting the church. So, so no doubt whatsoever, these, views have been, these verses have been used to cause terrible harm. And at the same time, there are many who are taking advantage of the cultural moment today to excuse their sin. And we have to be wise and discerning. We have to recognize this. It tests our modern sensibilities, but again, here's why we go back to the full context. Here's why we go back to verses 12 through 14. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the good shepherd who loves his sheep. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. I love the light that David Platt shares on this particular passage. I hope it helps us see this a little bit more clearly today. He writes, this step may sound unloving or embarrassing, but we need to feel the tone behind what Jesus is saying here. We're tempted to think, why tell a whole group of people about this brother and his sin? In reality, however, the church is saying together, we love you and we want you to come back to Christ. God loves us so much that if we are caught in sin, he will send an entire army of believers to us as a demonstration of his love and mercy. 
That's what this third step is about. It's, it's about making it known to the membership of the congregation, this brother or sister, they have fallen away from the 99, that they have drifted into isolation, that they are wandering off into sin. It is incumbent on us to pursue this brother the way Jesus pursued the one. It's incumbent on us to go after them, to chase after one who has strayed, to call them to account, to, to call them back to Christ, to call them back to the church. And in so doing, we are saving their soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. It, it is an all-out effort. It's a search and rescue mission for the one who has gone astray. So we keep the circle as long as possible, as small as possible for as long as possible. But the reality is, and Jesus shows us here, that many will stubbornly continue to double down on their sin, and they're going to refuse every loving attempt to be drawn back. So Jesus shows us fourth, if a brother or sister still refuses to respond after public recognition, the fourth and final step is congregational exclusion. If they won't respond to one-on-one, they won't respond to a small group, if they won't respond even to the effort of the entire church body to draw them back, Jesus says, verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, even to the ecclesia, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's saying this to a Jewish audience. So what what that means for us today is is when this person just, just continues to double down their sin, there comes a point in time when we can no longer recognize them as a faithful follower of Jesus. And so our mission with this individual starts to change. We're no longer in a relationship of discipleship. The relationship has now shifted gears to evangelism. We now pursue them, we continue to pursue them, but we're now pursuing them uh, under the assumption of the guys that they are not true followers of Christ, that they did not truly hear the gospel, they did not truly repent, they did not truly believe, they, they did not truly belong to the body of Christ. So the mission's no longer discipleship, it's evangelism, and we approach them as if they're not a follower of Jesus. Now, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because um, th- this is going to give us an example of, of how this was practiced in the New Testament church. Again, there was a a brother in the congregation had a very serious moral lapse. And once again, uh, Paul calls this out in the context of one of his letters. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read together uh, verses um, uh, 1 through 5. And then we're going to skip down to draw a distinction in verses 9 through 13. So 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, verses 1 through 5. He writes to the church in Corinth, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. So y'all, Corinth was crazy. I, I mean, just, just seriously. He was like, you guys have fallen into sin that's so bad that even the pagans are looking at you going, y'all are nuts. And this is what was happening within the congregation. He said, for a man has his father's wife. Transla- translation, there was a guy sleeping with his stepmom. And, and Paul goes on to write, he says, and you are arrogant. So not only are they unrepentant, that there's a sense in which they're actually proud of this. I mean, is that not where we are culturally right now when it comes to sexual sin? Like, we don't just tolerate it. We celebrate it. We're, we call it pride. And, and, and this is exactly what, what Paul's speaking is. He says, you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? He's like, this should be causing grief. That this should be causing pain. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. So there's a process of exclusion. Paul says, verse 3, for though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What Paul's saying is, hopefully in just delivering this brother into his sin, he comes to his senses. 
and he recognizes his need to repent. But then he draws an important distinction for us in verses 9 through 13. Paul says uh, towards the bottom, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So again, this is a really important distinction for us. When we talk about the practice of church discipline and accountability, we're not talking about administering this to people who don't know Jesus Christ. That's another way this has been abused through the years. It's been used to ostracize unbelievers who were seeking to know the truth. And Paul says, we don't do this. He said, we don't hold non-Christians, we don't hold unbelievers accountable to our standard. It, it shouldn't shock us when lost people act like lost people. He's like, our, our desire is to win them to Christ, it's to draw them to Christ, and to, to see their hearts transformed by the gospel. This is holding accountable professing followers of Christ who are walking in open, unrepentant sin. But we also, I think, need to recognize today, Paul doesn't just limit this to big sins that we might call, quote-unquote, big sins like sexual immorality and idolatry. This applies even to our more culturally acceptable sins like gossip and division. We studied Titus back in the fall, and here's what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 3, 9, and 10. He said, but avoid foolish controversies. Man, that's a word for 2022. Avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Why? For they are unprofitable and worthless. And so here's his instruction. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, walking through the process of church discipline, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So again, there are moments when it's not only appropriate, it's biblically commanded that we disassociate ourselves from others who claim to know Jesus Christ but persist in their sin. And the hope is that over time, is, uh, through isolation, through loving efforts to, to draw them back in, uh, the, the hope over time is that, man, they come to their senses, they repent of their sin, and they're restored to fellowship. But again, you, you may be sitting there this morning hearing all this, and you're just asking the question, okay, I... I'm, I'm just not on board here. Like, who gives you the authority? Who gives the church the authority to enter into any kind of process of who belongs and who doesn't? And I would just say very respectfully this morning that Jesus Christ does. It's what he's given in his word. This is what he gives in Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20. He goes on to say, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. These verses are abundantly clear for us today. God has given his pastors and God has given his people in the congregation the authority to address sin. This language of binding and loosing, you know what Jesus is saying there? When he says what you bind on earth will be bound and loosed in heaven, what Jesus is saying is that authority has been granted to the leaders of the Lord's church to open the door or to keep it shut. We have been given authority by Christ, according to his word, to admit and when necessary to exclude. And again, modern sensibilities. We hear that. I'm not on board with that. The Jesus I know would never do something like that. Well, then, friend, it's time for you to consider whether or not you know Jesus because the Jesus of the Bible says otherwise. The Jesus of the Bible is the one who gave us this command and gave us this instruction. You know, it's interesting at times how we'll hide behind the more comforting parts of Scripture to ignore and forsake the more challenging commands of Scripture. 
Because we hear this, we're like, nope, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Nope, Romans 1, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And this is where we have to draw the distinction. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus is not a friend of sin. And regardless of what our culture may say today, friend does not have to mean affirming, and kind does not have to mean permissive. We have to draw this distinction. Whenever we refuse to do this, we cheapen the grace of God. You know, if if there is on the one extreme uh, this domineering authoritarianism, there is on the opposite extreme, I think, uh, a reality that equally grieves the heart of God, and that's a spineless sentimentality. So on the side of domineering authoritarianism, we're using the word of God to cause harm to people. On the side of spineless sentimentality, we are ignoring the word of God in the name of loving people. And both of these grieve the heart of God. Again, we're, just, we're in this moment where we are so terrified of causing anyone offense. Should it not concern us that we are offending Jesus by ignoring his word? Should we not be equally concerned about the offense that we cause his name? When we refuse to address sin within the body, we cheapen God's grace. You know, we quoted Bonhoeffer uh, two weeks in a row. I figured we'd make it three uh, this morning. Um, this is how Bonhoeffer defined cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Guys, I I recognize this morning, you know, for many of us, that the thought of even having a conversation with someone where we might be in a position where we're addressing their sin, that's like paralyzing. I know some right away, you're like, man, that, that, that is not me. I'm non-confrontational, nine, Enneagram, like I'm way over here, right? Like I, I don't do that. I just don't do that. That's not my personality. I, I just, I, I get away from these things. And this is where we need to recognize, like Jesus has promised he's gonna be with us in the process. He's not left us to do this on our own. In the same way he calls us to obey all that he commands in the Great Commission, he also promises to be with us always as we carry those commands out. God's word never commands what his spirit doesn't provide. And what Jesus is saying in verse 19 is that if brothers and sisters in Christ stand in agreement on the spiritual condition of another professing Christian, we are promised that the Father in heaven will recognize and affirm in heaven what we have declared here on earth. We've been given that authority. It says in verse 20, when he is present where two or three are gathered, he's saying that he is going to be with us as we come together and carry out the very difficult work of church discipline. Now, Matthew 18, 20 is probably the most misquoted passage of scripture in the entire Bible. Uh, my favorite uh, coffee mug is in my office. Emily got it for me a few years ago. And, and it's a, a, a sarcastic paraphrase of Philippians 4. It says, I can do all things through a Bible verse taken out of context. And um, I, don't, I can't think of a passage of scripture that's more terribly taken out of context than Matthew 18, 20. We love to pray, Lord, your, set, your word says where, where two or three are gathered, there you are. And there's more than three of us here, so we know you're here. It's, it's bad theology for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus promises to be with us always. It's not like you're having your your Bible study by yourself at home. It's like, well, guess the Lord's not coming today. It's only, this is just me here. He's he's not saying that he, like, like Lord magically shows up when two or three, like, he's he's with us always. But, But more than that, the context of this passage is the process for maybe kicking somebody out of the church. It's a really weird verse to pray like that. You know, I I think I touched on this passage um, a couple years ago. And I, the, the example I gave, I said, you know, if we, we hang this passage of scripture by itself in our living room, it's kind of like hanging a picture of your favorite president in an impeachment trial. 
It's just, just kind of a weird thing to, to put up. Little did I know there were a few people watching from home that day that had this verse hanging above their fireplace. So I got, I got tagged in a few social media posts like, LOL, oops. And um, so, so again, didn't try to send everybody on a redecorating spree, but I think we do need to recognize that reality. Like that, that is the context of this passage. Jesus promising he will be with us when we do this very difficult work. He's not leaving us to do it on our own. You know, it's so easy to ignore passages like this because in our finite minds, it sounds unloving. You know, it was, uh, probably four or five years ago, I was having lunch with a group of pastors from the Beaufort Jasper area. There's about a dozen of us there, and we, um, as we were eating, we were having a conversation about Matthew 18 and just the challenges of, man, how do you actually flesh this out in the life of a, of a local church? And, and so you know, six or seven of us had you know, chimed in a lot in this conversation, and there was, there was one pastor sitting around the table. We got to the end, and he just kind of shook his head, and he goes, I don't know, guys, I don't, I don't think this one's for me. And we were like, well, what, what do you mean it's, it's, it's not for you? He goes, you know, he said, I just figure I've got enough sin in my own life to, to be worried, I need to be worried about that rather than worrying about anybody else's. And um, he said, you know, my, my heart is just for that person who's fallen and they're, they're, they're beaten down by their sin. He said, that's my heart, that's the heart of our church, so I, I think I'm out on this. And you know, you, you hear that, and here's where we have to be wise and discerning. You hear that, and it sounds like humility. It sounds like love, it sounds like grace, it sounds like mercy. Church, you know what it actually is? It's pride and arrogance. Because you know what that brother's functionally saying? I think I can love people better than Jesus did. I think I can love people by ignoring this command that was given by Jesus. It, it sounds loving, it sounds gracious, it sounds humble, but that's really us saying, no, I can do this better than Jesus did. I can forsake parts of his word because they make me uncomfortable, make others uncomfortable. I can love people better than Jesus did. Look, we saw this as we studied Hosea 6 back in early January. The Lord disciplines the one whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. When parents don't lovingly, fairly administer discipline to their children, we don't call them loving, we call them negligent. When we as a body of Christ allow sin just to run rampant in our relationships and in the, the congregation as a whole, we are being negligent by ignoring what Jesus has called us to do. So again, this is heavy this morning. It's, it's, it's a lot to, to take in, a lot to process at once. We just ask the question, how can we faithfully practice Matthew 18? We have not been given permission to ignore these words. There, there's no such thing as a healthy church that does not practice Matthew 18. So how can we faithfully hold this up? How can we do this without causing people harm uh, and also without forsaking something that Jesus has clearly commanded? Three challenges for us as we close this morning. One is just that we be people who humbly give and receive honest correction. We've got to be people with, with, with tender hearts and with tough hides. You know what I mean? Like, like we've got to be willing. We've got to be open to, to receiving some hard words from brothers and sisters who are saying, friend, I just, you know, I see this inconsistency. I see this pattern in your life. The decisions you're making, the places you're going, the words you're speaking, the actions you're taking, none of this seems to align with who Jesus calls us to be. I think you're being led astray from the Lord. And, and man, I think you, you've got some sin in your heart that you need to acknowledge and bring to the Lord so that we can restore unity in the body, restore your fellowship in the church. We've got to be able to do this honestly. We've got to be able to give honest correction. We've got to be able to receive honest correction. Second, gently confront and rebuke wayward believers. We do this in a spirit of gentleness. Yes and amen. We need to be a church that speaks the truth. This is language we used a lot early on. We said cross-community church, we want to be a church that's about unapologetic truth 
and unconditional love. We're gonna hold the line on truth, but we're also gonna hold the line on love. And when we lose one, we start to lose the other. And so we wanna be people who gently confront and rebuke those who fall into sin. But when they do repent, when they turn from their sin, hopefully that happens at step one. And reality is 99% of the time it does stop at step one. It's, it's enough just to have a conversation. And it just, just kind of ends there. Most of us will not see 99.9% of church discipline that actually takes place. Because praise God, you know, most believers are, are in a place, they're willing to hear it from at least one or hear it from a small group of others. Like we only bring it to the congregation as the absolute last resort. And so we want to gladly receive and restore those who repent of their sins. Again, we go back to Galatians 6 where Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. That's the goal. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Someone comes forward brokenhearted, contrite, repentant. We don't pile on him. No, we, we pull the burden off by God's grace. We tell them, man, you're, you're free of your chains because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We throw our arms open to them. We welcome them back in. I love this language from our membership covenant. This comes directly from Galatians 6 and James 5. In the section that says we will grow, we make the promise to one another, we will bear one another's burdens. We will humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another in church discipline and restoration. Under the statement that says we will go, it says we will seek to bring back those who wander from the truth, thus saving their souls from death and covering a multitude of sins. If you fall into sin, this is the promise. If you fall into sin because we love you, we will speak truth to you. And if you drift away from the church because we love you, we're coming after you. That's what church membership's about. It's about knowing who the hundred are so that when one leaves, we can leave the 99 and chase after this one. And that's the heart of Jesus. We do this for others because this is what Jesus has done for us. This is what the gospel says. It says, when you and I were at our absolute worst, I mean, when we were in the worst of the worst of the worst of our sin, on our way to destruction, the good shepherd chased us down at the cost of his own life. He called us to repent of our sin. He invites us to be saved from death. And he calls his church to preserve the unity of the body, to preserve the integrity of our witness and our walking in holiness and uprightness before a watching world by calling one another to account in love. And that's the work he invites us into today. So you just bow your heads with me as we close. Um, we're going to move right to the table for the Lord's Supper today because I believe this is right where that message leads us. There's a sense in which every time we, we preach the word that we, we are carrying out biblical accountability and church discipline. We're calling each other back to the word. We're told through Paul's letter to Timothy that all of Scripture, it's breathed out by God and it's given for rebuke, it's given for correction, it's given for training in righteousness. So there's a sense in which we've all been confronted already today. And so before we come to the table, I just invite you to examine your heart, to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the dark places of your heart that maybe you can't even see on your own because of sin. And just ask, well, what is out of step with God and his word? What is out of step with the standard of holiness that God has called us to walk in by the power of his spirit, by his grace. Where today do you need to confess? Where today do you need to repent? Who even is in your life that the Lord may be calling you to pursue today? That brother or sister who has wandered away from the truth. So, Father, as we confess, as we repent,
as we pray. We pray that it would all be glorifying to you, Lord, that we would do honest business in our hearts. We can hide nothing from you, Lord, so help us to be honest with you about what you already know. And to come to this table being reminded of what it cost you to save us. The magnitude of our sin, but also the magnitude of your mercy. You gave us Jesus. Help us never to treat that lightly. Lord, help us to never cheapen your grace. So as we come to the table, as we confess, as we repent, as we sing, as we respond, be glorified in the praises of your people. Use these words to shape us and edify us as we go today, as we strive to be a people who will chase after the one in the same way that you've chased after us. We commit all this to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.